This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase. As always, I'm your host, Edward Jones, from the Depths of DVD Hell and Channel Superhero. And tonight is something of a very special show, as here on episode 41 we're going to be doing a little bit of a franchise look back at probably one of the more overlooked horror franchises out there, which is, in, which in my opinion, uh, is very unfair, really. And the series we're going to be looking at tonight is the Critters franchise. But... Episode 41 is actually going to be a very special show for myself as tonight I'm joined by a very special guest, someone I've been trying to get on really since episode one and probably one of my oldest friends in the blogging community as we've been obviously talking back and forth and obviously been reading her work since way back in 2009. So it gives me the absolute great pleasure to welcome to the show Jen, Jen Francis, formerly of the Calavade of uh, Perversions and now I guess freelance out in the writing world as I'm right in saying Jen is that right yep that's not right sounds good <laughs> obviously we've been talking for like quite a while but this is actually any communication we've had has always been like through emails so this is actually the first time we're now having a proper conversation and I know so it's kind it's of like, weird it's exciting yeah <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> yeah. it's even more random the fact that obviously the first time we choose to have a conversation it's on this podcast but uh thank you very much obviously coming on and uh talking about it's I mean, obviously, your background, um, and obviously where we first started talking, I mean, it was mainly through sort of cult and obscure horror films. Mm -hmm. Would you say horror is sort of like your main love when it comes to movies? Horror is definitely my main love. It is pretty much what I I eat, breathe, sleep. Horror is is it. Um, We watch a bit of comedy here and there, but mostly it's, it's horror movies, and it has been for a really long time, as long as I can remember. Yeah, I mean, do you remember the sort of film which sort of sparked this love affair with horror? Or um, I remember like going to the video store when I was a kid and seeing like the big box films, like yep. in the VHS boxes, and um, it t- it took me years to see it. But Herschel Gordon Lewis's um, 2001 Maniacs, the box for that, just like drew me in. It was the girl in the front with her tongue cut out, and I was just like. <laughs> Oh my God, that movie, that must be the scariest thing ever. Yeah. And it just, you know, when I was able to start renting movies, I was scared to rent that one and I never rented it until much later when I bought it and I watched it as an adult and love it, loved, still love it. But um, yeah, I think that was, I think that was probably like the, the turning point um, film for me, even though I didn't see it until much later. Yeah, I think I totally agree with you. So when those days of going to the video store, it was always the horror section would be the one that would hang around in, even though I would knew 
that I would never mm-hmm. watch any of these films because I was such a coward. I mean, even as an adult, I think I was in, in college, so really around 2001 when I started actually getting into horror movies. Yeah. Um, so I missed... There's a lot of people out there who, who obviously grew up and they watch things like Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and I was just this big coward who... Unless it featured a monster in it, that would be like my exception. So things like Critters, uh, Gremlins, uh, Ghoulies, so oh, basically in the Little Rubber Monster <laughs> sort of things. Little Rubber watch. Monsters, they're, they're my absolute favorite. To go off on a tangent just about monsters and like what got me originally into that, we recently saw a stage production of Little Shop of Horrors here in Richmond, where we're from. And um, I remember seeing it when I was seven, maybe, like 30 years ago, and... I think that was my first ever monster. The Audrey 2 was my first ever monster. And to get to see it again now at this age, I was like, I remember this. I remember this being my first monster. And then, you know, graduating onto like gremlins and critters, obviously ghoulies um, is a favorite, has been for years. But yeah, I think the Audrey 2 was my first monster. I think for myself, it was Labyrinth. Labyrinth was the first, the first sort of monsters, um, and then of course your parents think, "Oh, you like Labyrinth? Why don't you watch The Dark Crystal? That's by Jim Henson as well." And it's like, mm-hmm. "No, that's completely different." <laughs> um, I just, you know, I, think, I don't think I've ever seen The Dark Crystal all the way through. Haven't you? I don't think I have. There's some real childhood scarring scar- scar- trauma in that film. Yeah, sure. yeah, I I can picture it, but I don't know it. If that makes sense. Okay. I think this is what the next time you actually make it over to the UK, we're gonna <coughs> we'll hang out and we'll watch Dark Crystal. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then I can like highlight all the parts where it was like, well, that was traumatizing. That was traumatizing. And this is, I mean, this is from Jim Henderson. You would assume that you know the guy who gave us Fraggle Rock and the Muppets. You know, yeah, the Muppets. Yeah, yeah. He can't be dark, but then when you get older and you start to look at his whole career and you see when he do was doing like things, especially towards the later end of his career, with things like the Storyteller and and Dark Crystal. I mean, he really did have this dark edge to him, mm-hmm. um, which you obviously don't associate. And Gremlins, again, is another of those films your parents rent because they remember the funny parts, but they don't remember like the part where the gremlin blows up in the microwave or when well, Spike it's, melts. It's and... quite, yeah, it's quite gory. And, you know, watching it now, there's, there's a lot of darkness to it. Um, the old lady, like, she wants to kill um, Zach Galligan's dog. Yeah. Like, there's, like, animal <laughs> cruelty to it. There's gore. It's, there, it's a whole other level when you watch it now as when you watched it when you were a kid. You just saw Gizmo in his pink Barbie car, and it was cute, and it was funny, and Corey Feldman was, or Corey Haim, was Corey Haim, sorry, was dressed as a Christmas tree, and that was always, like, something that stuck out as funny to me. But, yeah, it is, it is quite dark, and it's quite gory, and it's quite violent, and... You know, that was everybody's first monster, at least here in America. A lot of yeah. that was most people's first. I mean, yeah, because I mean, the original script for Gremlins, if you can ever get hold of it, is really dark. Like, the Gremlins break the mother's neck, the dog yeah. gets eaten. <laughs> yeah. There's all these things that they cut out to try and make it a little more friendly. But I recently started compiling my list of 100 uh, favorite movie moments. And I don't know what this says about me, but when Phoebe Cates tells the story of her father breaking his neck in the chimney, Mm-hmm. Uh, that made it on my list. The, that and the scene where the gremlins uh, listening to jazz and drawing on the table. Yeah. Uh, and the other one harasses him with a puppet. I think those are the two scenes that I came away from just enjoying the most. And I still enjoy them now as an adult. Right. Um, but, I mean, what was your thoughts on Gremlins 2? Because obviously that went more in a Muppets direction. It kind of 
for well, logistical Gremlins possible. Came out, Gremlins came out in 84. I don't really remember seeing that theatrically. I do remember seeing um, the new batch theatrically. Um, I was a little bit older. Obviously, it came out later. I think like maybe 89 or 90 off the top of my head. And um, I went to see it with some friends. And I remember just like having this uproarious great time, just like laughing and and finding it hilarious that it was these like, you know, horrible little monsters um, kind of taking over this New York high rise sort of thing. The monster, you know, the monsters were, were bigger and badder. Yeah. And definitely a lot more fun. And, um, yeah, so that was, that's actually, now that I think about it, was one of my first, like, theatrical monster experiences, was seeing Gremlins, the new batch. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was never that that fortunate. I had to wait for it to come out on, uh, on VHS. Right. Um, and it's so bizarre when it came out on VHS because this, the middle portion where the film breaks... Um, and they started doing the Shadow Puppets. In the film release, you have, obviously, Hulk Hogan does his bit and yeah, that's normal. <laughs> but in the VHS version, it cuts to John Wayne shooting, having a shootout with the Gremlins. So when it oh. comes to the end credit, it's like Hulk Hogan, and it's like, well, Hulk Hogan wasn't in this movie. Did yeah. I, like, miss something here? So it was... I loved the uh, surrealness, and I think it shares this this filmmaking style really like Evil Dead 3, uh, The Army of Darkness, where yeah, yeah. clearly they got to the halfway point and they realised, this film isn't scary. Why don't we just right. make it a full-blown comedy? And I think the only thing which Gremlins 2 really suffers from is the fact that there is no discernible leader Gremlin, whereas it, we had Spike in number one. Right, right. Um, oh, or Stripe, sorry. Right, um, yeah. In Gremlins 2, who do we assume is the leader? Is it the brain Gremlin? Is or it the Spike? spider Gremlin? Yeah. Uh, I don't really know. I don't know. But I mean, is there any other sort of little rubber monster movies that you that you like at all? Or well, I love the critters. Obviously, um, they are just so vicious <laughs> compared yes. to you know um, the Mogwai. I guess not. Not the Gremlins. They're pretty vicious, but the critters are just so vicious. And I love, I love, love, love the probably my favorite thing about it is that when they talk to each other, there's subtitles. <laughs> I've just always found that hilarious, um, that they're communicating to each other through their own, like, alien language. And, like, I think it's either in the first one or the second one, but my favorite, I need, like, a screen grab of it to, like, put on my, on my like, lock screen or something. But, like, one of the lead um, critters, he's, he's, like, he's talking in the critter language to his other critters, and the... The subtitle is Cheeseburger, Cheeseburgers No Bones. And I just think that that's so funny. And that has stuck with me forever and ever. And it's just one of the fun aspects of, like, monster movies that I love, especially the Little Rubber Monster movies. Yeah, it's always in the second one because um, we also have the scene where they take over the, the fast food restaurant. Yeah. And the flipping burgers. That's what that I love fun. about the fact. It's not – everything else they encounter, they're just going to this feeding frenzy, but – for some reason, they're, they're flipping burgers. I and... about that. That's hilarious. But yeah. And they're having a good time doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the thing about, about the gremlins as well. They have, they're, they're nasty little things, but they have a good time. <laughs> oh, definitely. And it's easy to see why it was so often compared to gremlins. Even though Critters reportedly was, had the script finished before gremlins came out. Um, and the fact that they green-lighted it. Like, much like Ghoulies, uh, yeah. which... 
essentially, especially the Goonies one, which basically crammed in a five dollar puppet just because Gremlins made money. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had these these movies, but Critters, I think, was probably the the most successful one of these sort of like cash ins and. It's yeah, I, I would agree with that statement. Yeah, I think it's only now sort of started to gain more of a cult following. I think certainly the first film has always been popular, but the other three films in the in the series have kind of like came out and and went by the wayside. So now it's it's interesting to see people obviously getting back into them again. So yeah, definitely. Um, another interest to yourself, and I have to obviously ask you this: is Paul Nashi? Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, oh. You're the only person I know who's obsessed with with this werewolf actor. Oh, really? Interesting. I would think that more <laughs> horror fans would gravitate towards his work. He's he's pretty incredible. He has an incredible body of work, a very interesting story, and he's a handsome devil. So I think like fans of Euro horror and um fans of like universal monsters would would obviously gravitate towards Paul. In that way, yeah. I I haven't actually watched a Nishi movie in a really long time. I need to I need to do that again. I I had a bit of a obsession there for a few years, a couple years back. Yeah, it used to and, be uh, like it seemed like he was one of the cornerstones of your blog when you were obviously yeah, writing. Yeah, he that. was. He definitely was. He definitely was. He still is a huge part of my fandom. Um, I just haven't um, delved into his work recently. Okay. But uh, I have them all. I own them all. I need- <laughs> No, I, I can watch them at any time. Yeah, I'm always very envious of your collection. Whenever you used to post like bits and pieces from the from the collection, yeah, because um, it seemed to be like the two running themes of of your blog were basically um, cats <laughs> taunting other horror fans with how awesome your collection was. <laughs> but, um, I mean, obviously the cover gate of uh, perversions. I mean, you it's essentially finished now. I'm, I'm right yeah, it's in. been a while. Um, I I would love to get back into it. I've written a few pieces here and there for friends zines, um, print zines and things, and I have a couple of projects coming up in print. But yeah, I actually haven't blogged in probably since oh god, I can't even remember. I last night I um actually read reread a post um I had written about Baffled, which was a TV pilot starring Leonard Nimoy as a psychic race car driving playboy. <laughs> And um, I had thought about that movie for some reason, and I was like, I couldn't find anything else about it. So I went back and I read my review of it, and and I was actually quite inspired. And I was like, you know, I think think one of these print projects that I have coming up might turn into a new era for the cavalcade. We'll see. We'll we'll definitely see. It is a shame that you obviously chose to step away from blogging. I mean, it's... We have, over the last couple of years, we've lost quite a few. Yeah, we have. We definitely have. um, And I think it's also not helped the fact that the way people interact with blogs has changed a lot from Mm -hmm. when I started out. And you would have that sort of interaction with people would wanting to comment on what you're writing. And now you can see people are sort of logging onto the site, but at the same time, you never get any sort of feedback. So it can be kind of like uh, the guy sitting on the desert island for a message in the messages out in a bottle and uh yeah, I, was kind of, I was kind of feeling that way and like now like i resisted facebook for a really long time and now i just know everybody on facebook from the cavalcade days yeah so it's like we can we can so much we can interact so much more quickly with one another 
via private messages or just like posts and you know I see a bunch of a bunch of us on there that I'm still friends with to this day um from from the blogger days um so yeah I think that Facebook has kind of kind of killed that for a lot of us in a lot of ways which is sad you know it is I miss we're not not like flushing our thoughts out like we used to we're not really I'm not writing detailed um entries about the most intri- you know the most intricate levels of a film anymore yeah. we're just like oh yeah I, was, I saw the witch I didn't like it the goat was cool yeah and then that's it you know what I mean like we don't we don't get into it like we should anymore it's, it feels that there's too much for, something for myself there's sort of a, too much of a casual approach and uh-huh. the thing I loved about blogging is the fact that you can have two pages on, on any particular film Right. Uh, with some of the some of the bloggers that I was reading, it's not just a five hundred word review on a film where we sort of basically skate over the main points of of the film. It's with blogging, and this is something I've the reason I still do it is the fact that I can get all my thoughts out on the same, yeah, um, and then just move on to something else and not feel that I'm constantly coming back to it and like saying, oh, and another thing, yeah. Um, so it's nice in that that respect, and but. It is, yeah, I totally agree with that. I feel that at the moment, just the whole writing industry is all going a bit, uh, a bit wonky at the moment, especially with people wanting to give you more prestige for for writing for them rather than pay you. Right. Um, and unfortunately, we're in this position where, where there is some. I would like don't say this in the most respectful terms. There are some disillusioned writers out there who feel yeah. that we could somehow go on strike, but. As someone who's obviously been writing, I mean, for so long now, I've been writing just about Conan Forward School Cinema. I realized the other day it's been about 16 years I've been doing this now. That's awesome. Um, that there's always someone younger and hungrier that's mm-hmm. going to take that work if you don't want to do it. So right. we're not like the writers' union where you can sort of go and strike and people listen. You sort of you go and strike and you're out of a job. So, but something that you really championed as well uh, was for your blog, and it wasn't just film, and you used to champion a lot with actually reading, especially bizarro fiction. Oh. Now, has bizarro fiction sort of run its course, much like mumblecore, or is it still a genre of notes? Because I've not really seen anything for years about it. Actually, I, I, I follow a lot of bizarro, speaking of Facebook yet again, I follow a lot of bizarro authors that I have read on, on the Facebook and yeah, I still feel like it's it's very viable. Um, over the summer, I went to a convention here in Virginia, um, the Scares That Care Horror Convention, and there was a big Bizarro panel that yeah. was actually excellent. Um, I got to see Carlton Malick read, hear um, Jeff Strand read both pieces that I was familiar with. Um, so that was exciting. Eraserhead Press had a big presence there, which was which I thought was huge, especially for for. Virginia when they're all the way from Portland, Oregon, almost 5,000 miles away. So I do think that Bizarro is still alive and very well. I just, I, I read it still quite often. For a while there, it was a steady diet of nothing but Bizarro. Yeah. And I got burned out on it, just like anything, you know. So now I try to read maybe one Bizarro novel a month while I read other scary things. That's fine. <laughs> Violent things. That's right. <laughs> That's I mean, like any... I mean, who's your sort of favorite authors on the reading part at the moment then? 
Um, on the moment, let's let's take a look at my Kindle here. <laughs> um, I recently read a great um, Bizarro novella by uh, Betty McIntyre. It was called Arachnophile. Okay. And it was about you would actually love it. It's um, about humans coexisting with giant spiders, basically. And there's been a government kind of upheaval, and which is unexplained in the novella, about how these spiders have come to live with us and how we're supposed to be accepting of these spiders. Yeah. And then the spider, the spider moves in next door to this couple, and everything goes awry. Um, so that was fun and bizarre and interesting. Um, I've been reading another um, really dark piece. It's called The Death House. And it's kind of like a, um, it's not, I don't like to use this term zombie anymore, and neither do any authors that I'm reading either. I feel like that term's kind of gone out of fashion, but it's by Sarah Pinborough. She's um, from the UK as well. Okay. And it's just, it's a very dark kind of, I can't figure out if it's like young adult fiction or if it's, I can't figure out what it is yet, but I'm, I'm currently embroiled in it, and it's quite dark and quite scary. And yeah, just a bunch of other um, whatever whatever Room Org is recommending to me, and whatever pops up in that Amazon feed, I'll try to give it a go. It seems like it's up my alley. Yeah, I'm, I mean that's sort of gray area at the moment because a lot of the authors I was sort of came up with, all the authors I sort of found inspiration from, have kind of I feel now that they're kind of losing it. I mean, obviously one of my big inspirations like Penope, I mean I read Brett Easton Ellis who's now I think oh, he's yeah. more up his own ass now especially since he's I, I couldn't finish his last two. <laughs> oh, he's I mean yeah he's he I think uh, Quentin Tonto put it that that like with directing and writing it's it's like a muscle it's like once you go soft then you you very rarely get it back yeah um, and I'm finding I mean, with uh, like Chuck Planick again, another big inspiration. He's now more focused on experimenting with the writing style than his earlier I, social I satire. Enjoyed, I enjoyed his new one. I'm fine. Like some of his stuff, I'm enjoying. Um, like I liked, I think it was Doomed or Damned, the first one of his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gee, I really enjoyed that. Um, Haunted, I still think's a great collection. I think the new one is kind of a return to Haunted form. Um, I definitely got it, a, a lot of the gross out stuff from it, and just um, yeah. Because I really, I'm because I, I mean, he went through that period of things like Diary and Tello, and it was but mm-hmm. oh, these are really sort of strenuous. And then he'd occasionally put publish something like Rant or Snuff. That those were my favorite. <laughs> snuff, I love especially. Just it's one of those books that I kind of had to like get like a brown paper cover for because it's obviously it's a film about these guys queuing up to take part in a world record gangbang gang bang, yeah <laughs> um and the fact that he's he's come up with this like risque cover should we say uh yeah. for it so obviously when you're on the train and stuff everyone thinks you're reading filth i mean it's bad enough when i'm trying to read read robin bourget's uh cinema sewer books um the fact that his books are fine when he's just talking about normal film, but occasionally he'll often go off into his like obsession with uh, retro filth and 
his rather explicit drawing style means that right. you, you kind of want to make sure that you're in a position where no one's going to be like looking over your shoulder and think that you're just some sort of pervert on the train. And that's right. And... <laughs> I, I listen to podcasts on the train. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I mean, obviously with, with podcasts, again, that was something that when we started the show, it was like, everyone's like podcasts. So it, I thought that went out of style in like the late 90s, but it's all coming back with events. It's all coming now. back. It's, it's, it's bigger than ever. I'm obsessed. Um, I listen to Remorgue's podcast. Um, I listen to Welcome to Night Vale, which is an excellent, weird Lovecraftian podcast. If you haven't um, checked it out yet, you would love it. Sword and Scale is my obsession in the podcast world. Have you have you heard of that? I haven't. Um, oh my god, it's it's a true crime podcast. Okay, and you just become lost in these stories. Their their tagline is Sword and Scale. You know the where the true monsters are real, or I think that's what it, what their tagline is, and it's it's very ominous. But the stories they they downward spiral, and they're all true. Okay. And it's just fantastic. It's it's yeah. wonderful. I think anyone that's into the macabre should give it a listen. Definitely. Okay. It's so hard to know what to listen to because the podcasts are so numerous now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tend to avoid any of the celebrity podcasts. There's very few sort of celebrity podcasts that I listen listen to. I mean, I used to listen to Brett Easton Ellis, but when it came to him recycling the same five themes, it's like, oh, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Um, the WTF podcast, I think, is just sort of the benchmark for, for podcasts. I think when he's got a good guest on, it's great. Yeah. Um, and Harmontown, I think, is another ascent one of my other essential lessons but for the most part I, I love listening to like all the indie sort of podcasts especially the film podcasts out there things like the French Toast Sunday podcast or Lay of the Unwanted and you'll have to send me a whole list I will I'll, yeah. get, I'll put your list together Jen and you can yeah so I'd love them. that <laughs> I'm always down for one of your recommendation lists I'm so glad <laughs> the only other sort of author I, I really wanted to talk to one to really sort of question you about would be uh, Mark Zaniel Danilowski, who obviously oh, gave yeah. us House of Leaves House back of in Leaves, 2000. Yeah. Um, a book which I'm told that if you're the sort of person who's into fonts and pu- publishing and how book layouts are done, it works on a higher level than if you approach it like the layman like myself who just thinks, wow, this is an interesting story told in a very artistic fashion. Um, um, his... It, it's a very challenging book to be sh- to be sure. It's it's extremely challenging, and his other work is even more challenging. And it's alienating, I think, yeah. on a lot of in a lot of levels. Um, I can't remember the other one that I I had from him. Um, well, you definitely have to have a physical copy. Yeah, he's in the <laughs> middle of a that you can do an e-read on. Yeah, which I appreciate. Honestly, I mean, I guess it came out, it did come out in 2000 and that was kind of before the whole big e-reader thing. But, um, yeah, it's, it's challenging. Let's say that. (laughs) When he's in the process of doing his 27 volume story called The Familiar, um, and he's releasing a book a year, I believe, at the moment, about 880 pages each. So you get a fair amount of book for your money and, but it's, the fact that he's he's writing this twenty-seven page book and if they're about eight hundred pages each, it makes wonder who has the time to dedicate to that much story. Right. Um, it's like I I don't know when I read 
it's like I want to get everything read like as fast as I can because I have the next thing to move on to to read and it's like something like that I would definitely have to um, take a lot more time to dedicate to it I mean I find most of my time at the moment I'm just need to read more fiction at the moment I'm too caught yeah. up in just reading film books like I'm rereading Kim Newman's Nightmare movies I just finished Pat and Oswald's um, story about his addiction to celluloid which again was another fantastic read but I think I need to get back into uh, reading, reading um, more fiction so. have you read ri- any of Richard Codry's novels at all? I haven't oh he's fantastic um, the Sandman Slim series okay you have to start with that. It's on, he's on the eighth one, and it comes out. It just came out. The eighth one just came out. I haven't. Um, it's in my to be read pile, but I've read them all. Some of them twice. He's fantastic. He's written a couple of other books: Butcher Bird, Metrophage. Um, I think that you would love them. They're very. What's a good word to describe them? They're they're very rich. You you get a lot of it, and it's it's a good universe building. I, lo- I love the universe that he's created through the Sam and Slim series sorry i can't be more eloquent that's fine that's fine i mean did you ever feel like the urge to go into writing books yourself or are you writing books at the moment and i would love to i wish that i could say that there was a book in me i i i want there to be um i've tried my hand at bizarro a little bit i've taken a couple of bizarro workshops here and there my background is in english literature i have all my degrees in in literature, but with a bent towards film studies. So I definitely did quite a bit of writing when I was in graduate school, and I guess you could consider my thesis a short kind of book, I guess. Thesis, not really a book, but... And I've also wanted to, and I've, I've had this project in my mind for many, many years, I'd love to do like a bio or some sort of like, um, tell all about the um, female exploitation director Doris Wishman. Oh, so I think, nice! Yeah, I think if I did have a book in me, it would be nonfiction at first, and then I would want to get into some more experimental kind of bizarro aspect of writing because yeah. you can just kind of be free, I guess, with that medium or with that genre, as yeah. it were. I think th- this is the thing with. Writing books is all very good setting up with the idea of writing it, but the actual act of writing a book is often a lot more daunting than than you expect it to be. Right. You know, when I when I first obviously started writing, it was always it was fiction, and in particular, I was doing doing screenplay stuff, and I think I got so annoyed by people trying to alter things that no one mm-hmm. would ever let anything be, and that's why I sort of stumbled more into obviously writing um, film criticism, really, but. Right. I know that if I was to do any sort of book, really, and I think I've missed the mark, really, and I think this is something I really wish someone would have done or someone is doing, and that would be to write a book about uh, the sort of golden age of stuntmen and people like like Buster Keaton and Howard Lloyd, uh, that sort of 1920s sort of uh, stuntmen where basically these were actors who were going out and it wasn't the case where you had stuntmen or way to do stunt work. It was basically if you want to do like a stunt in a car you took a real car and you just went and did it there was no real help and safety in that I would love to hear sort of stories and you have occasional bits and pieces such as uh, I Fatty come through where which is sort of like the bio of Fatty Arbuckle and he's Mm -hmm. talking about how they would like prescribe heroin as pain relief 
Right. And I just think it'd be just absolutely wild just to, when you, especially when you watch these old films, to find out the stories have, behind it. Have you read Hollywood Babylon? A long time ago. Yeah, I have a copy of it around here somewhere. It's been a while since I've, I've thumbed through it, but I should do that. That's kind of on point with that. So, <clears throat> but is there any other sort of sort of subjects that you wish that you sort of had the time to sort of carry on? I mean, you mentioned already Doris Wishman. Yeah, definitely the Wishman um, project. Um, just more towards like the Grindhouse era of filmmaking, just some <clears throat> some of those like hidden gems or movies that don't exist <clears throat> except for, you know, for people bringing them back and reviving them and yeah. saying, you know, this, this is a viable piece of art and no matter how flawed it may be, um, I don't want like those films to kind of be lost. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, there's so, so much out there that we haven't seen even as like super, nerdy film buffs and I'm I'm into that. I'm into like the undiscovered gem. I'm into the the grindhouse era, like the sleazy, you know, films like Wishman was making. Well I mean I, I used to think that I knew knew about film until I met yourself. And it's just like <laughs> it's like you problem. know nothing. <laughs> it's like <laughs> so it's I would have to thank you really for just obviously raising that bar. It was sort of like it's all like I ha if I want to be good, I have to be as good as Jenny. It was just like, oh, thank you, that's so nice. And it was all like I can't call myself like a film fan because obviously you'd like read your blog and it'd be like you'd list all these obscure movies. It was always like always had this really cool edge to it as well, which was so frustrating. It's sort of like how is she so right, so damn cool? Oh, so that makes me feel really good. Um, and I mean. Obviously, you mentioned Grindhouse. I mean, did you have like a favorite sort of genre or sort of like a favorite sort of director with the, within that sort of area? I know you've mentioned numerous times before when we spoke before about your love with Henloss, especially the film Basket Case. Oh, I'm a, I'm a huge Basket Case, huge brain damage fan. I actually have a my whole thigh is a um, tattoo of the brain spaghetti and meatballs with the Almer sticking out of it. Um, on my thigh because I just love um, Hannah Lauder's films so much. He just he just encapsulates that whole era, but like a little bit later, he's in the eighties and he was he was on the shelves in the video stores when I was when I was of age to look in the video stores when you know Messiah of Evil and things like that were not. So he was like the guy that I guess like gave me my first intro into that CD. Um, 42nd Street universe and with the little rubber monsters so it's like hey what's not to love about that you know <laughs> monsters grindhouse craziness subtext you know it's all there and oh he's amazing yeah I know when you were, you the original plan for this show I have to obviously say was that we would look at Messiah of Evil and I watched it, and I could not make head or tail of that. So we decided <laughs> to do Critters and Stakes. I actually knew what was going on with that one. So We didn't really know what was going on with it either. And we saw it with an audience, which was way cool, yeah. um, in New York City. So after numerous cocktails. So it was more of just a laugh riot than it was, like, critiquing a piece of cinema, which is which – is, um, part, which is a big part of it for me. Like it's, it's not, I have an academic background and I do, I, and on the cavalcade, I did approach things academically from time to time. And, and I'm all about that. Honestly, I love a deconstruction. I like to take literary criticism and, and de deconstruct films with it. Um, however that may work. 
but it's also about getting pissed and watching a movie with a bunch of people and having a good time with it. And I, I like both aspects of of being a film fan or film freak or whatever it is you want to call it. <laughs> uh, everyone seems to have their own description for what they call themselves. I normally call yeah. it uh, film junkie or film freak. Is Film freak, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, film freak, obviously, I... I is the one the title I tend to refer to myself as as the most, but yeah, it's I think as well. You mentioned obviously with with the obsession with Hamlet there. I think everyone has that director, their filth director that they can go to. I know yeah. most people it's Hamlet. For myself, it's Abel Ferreira. Oh, excellent! If excellent. I want to see grime, I just just watch something by Abel Thriller Ferreira. Right there. Um, mainly something like Bad Lieutenant. I love to I love to watch and. If you want, like, he's the griminess of like Driller Killer or Miss Forty Five, and he's—I love the fact he's one of those directors that he's never really lost it as such. I think he's even when he's became sort of more mainstream with things like King and New York and Welcome to New York, he's still got those still got grimy it. roots yeah. in there. Yeah. I even liked the uh, the spin-off of uh, Bad Lieutenant uh, Port Cornu New Orleans. I think that was that was really I great. Saw, I don't think I saw that, but I will check it yeah. out. Abel Ferrer wasn't too happy with it. He basically said everyone can go to hell. He was associated with that movie, but <laughs> well, it happens. <laughs> if you want to see good Nick Cage, uh, good Nick Cage performance, and it's Nick Cage teaming up with Werner Herzog, so you know, two crazies together. Two crazies together, you cannot beat that. I like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I wrote a review of Driller Killer a while ago. I I know that um, the Buffalo painting definitely sticks out to me. Right, right away. <laughs> it's been a while since I watched it, so I think I need to revisit it because I know I've yeah. not reviewed it at all. Um, I, think, I, I have definitely reviewed it. I, I'm going to go and take a look at that later on. Yeah, because over here it was like banned, like under the video nasties. They banned uh, it. Amongst... The video nasty. I did not know that. Yeah, they banned that, and they it was re-released the same time as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so '99. Uh, mm-hmm. '99, we had to change in the um, the heads of the B, uh, BBFC, so uh-huh. all the stuff that their previous head um, had sort of banned, mainly due to his personal taste, so things such as like uh, martial arts weaponry, especially nunchucks were all banned, uh, that's why mm-hmm. like Fist of Fury and Where the Dragon was so heavily edited Yeah. Um, and they re-released like Driller Killer, they re-released Exorcist, they um, did Texas Chainsaw Massacre and they, I just remember like the video stores like being filled with the posters of these films like mm. out and it was like finally released, so uh, yeah it was, wow. it was a great time to be a film fan of the, that period, especially here in the UK where... Yeah, definitely. So, but obviously the films we were talking about this evening, we're looking at the Critters franchise. These are understandably a little lighter than the films we've just been discussing. For those not familiar with the Critters franchise, basically the Critters, like the Gremlins counterpart, are a bunch of small, bad-tempered, yet strangely comedic uh, little monsters mm-hmm. from the first film they basically escape from a high security prison and head to earth with the intention of basically just eating everything in sight at the same time two shape-shifting bounty hunters are sent to earth to dispatch of them and it really kickstarts and sets in motion what will unravel over four films an ongoing sort of cycle of crites uh, hatch crites eat things crites get blown up <laughs> yep, sounds about right. Um, but where did your? We obviously just for this first part, we we'll just look at parts one and two. So, 
where did it really sort of begin for you, Agenda? I mean, did you watch these films in order or did you sort of watch them in, in the sort of order that you found? I must have, I must have watched them as, as they came out when I was growing up, but then definitely later as an adult. Like, I have the collection, yeah. the DVD collection, so I, I can't remember exactly when I bought it, but um, I've definitely watched them all the way through, like yeah. one through four. Um, in my adult life, I mean, I really like three. <laughs> Four is basically unwatchable, you know, when yeah. they go to space. But, um, yeah, I I guess I, I saw them as they came out, you know, in the 80s on VHS. I do remember that. Not anything specific, but it's like a flicker. And then, yeah, just I've watched them over the years. Or I get in the mood and I'll be like, hey, let's watch Critters too. It's really <laughs> funny. And we'll put it on, you know. I mean... The first one was uh, directed by Stephen Herrick, and this was really his only sort of venture into horror films. It was his debut film, and from there he would go on to direct many of like the key films of the 80s and early 90s, such as he did Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, and mm-hmm. The Mighty Ducks. Um, he did one of the best versions of The Three Musketeers in 93, uh, starring Charlie Sheen, and, um, and as well as Tim oh, Carey as the Cardinal. Uh, but for some reason it's the one version that's constantly forgotten um, and I have no idea why I mean his career as of late has been mainly sort of direct such as Into the Blue 2 um, I don't that one. he tried to reboot Dead Like Me one, another that wonderful series about uh, about Grim Reapers uh, with the awful sort of movie Life After Death which kind of spat on the memory of the, the TV series so don't watch it <laughs> that's the only thing I can really sort of say but yeah, it's a shame that he never really did any more Little Monster movies or sort of stayed with the Critters franchise because here we have, especially with the, this first film, we have the perfect example of a film which is, manages to be both scary and funny at the same time. Um, true, the comedy element sort of hits around the midway point and I wasn't sure whether that he was sort of doubted whether this film was actually funny or it was that attempt to cash in on the Gremlins market that that made so these changes being put in place, but we obviously have the this the Brown family here who are sort of inundated with these these horrible little monsters, um, and they're sort of sieged on on their farm and forced to sort of use improvised weapons to battle it. And one of the things I love about Critters is the fact that as we're poltergeist, we have this this family unit, and they're a very believable family units. Did you think? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's what, that's kind of what makes them, them scary for me now that I think about it. Um, because I had a very familiar, very similar, um, family dynamic. I'm the older sister and I have the one younger brother, parents still married, you know, and maybe that is, that what is, it makes it more believable or more scary in a way because it's like, oh, that's the same family dynamic that I'm currently a part of. Obviously, this film gave us our first first appearance of the the shape-shifting bounty hunters. We've obviously got the our main sort of bounty hunter who turns into like the hair rocker. And then, oh God, so funny! <laughs> and then we've got the second one who uh, the second uh, bounty hunter who constantly changes appearance throughout the film because he can never decide on the one the one uh, performance here. So obviously, our main one is played by Terence Mann, um, mm-hmm. and surprisingly, he kept coming back. I don't know if he was like just short of money or it was just dedication <laughs> to his role, but I mean, he just, these were like his, his sort of main 
his main sort of franchise because he didn't. Yeah, he did actually come back in free because he's on the video, isn't he? Yeah, I believe you're right. Um, and it's it's bizarre to think that he is actually still working because I can't really ever place him being in anything. Other I'm than surprised Christmas. he hasn't popped up at any conventions here in the states. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> like Colette Hiller. He's like one of those elusive people that you would like yeah. to see. Um, yeah, yeah. Rather than like, because I know, yeah, I know people would would definitely show up. No, instead we're sort of forced to see the guy who played the. Uh, I don't know, the fifth Ewok or Red Vibe <laughs> or something. That he is like two seconds on screen. Uh, yeah. And he's like sort of been milking it ever since. Right. With the the critters, do you prefer them when they're being funny or do you prefer it when it's more sort of... I prefer tentative? them when they're being funny. <laughs> like, you know, they're, they're cheeky. Um, you know, like somebody lights a, a firecracker in front of one of them and he picks it up, puts it in his mouth, smiles, and then blows himself up. Like, that's hilarious. Yeah. It was when I was a kid, and it, it still is now. So, yeah, I prefer them when they're funny. What about you? I do. I think one of my yeah. favorite... I love the, the middle section, where you've got the two critters on the bed, and they just start tearing the pillars apart. Yeah. And <laughs> for the other one, it keeps cutting to what these other critters are doing. Like, one's eating the fish in the fish tank, and the other's, like, talking to this E.T. doll. And, again, it's that that, those subtitles. Yeah, the subtitles kill me. It's like, who are you? Yeah. Uh, and like, one of them is called like Blackie or something. There's like one that has a name, and his name is Blackie. <laughs> so, so random. Mm. It's uh, yeah, I definitely prefer be, prefer them when they're funny. Yeah. I also I love the uh, the shape shifting effects though for the bounty hunters, which actually mm-hmm. freaked the hell out of me in the kit when I was a kid. Yeah. And you see, like it. It goes into this like bloody skull and like builds from from the out part where he's like obviously watching MTV to. Find the practical effects are qu- are quite good. They are quite good. They they have held up. Oh, definitely, especially with the critter effects. Yeah. Um, even though they, the actual look of the critters kept changing from film to film. Mm-hmm. I think the blue in the fourth one for some reason. Yeah, I think you're right. I ser- I search. That is still one of my main eBay searches to this day, for a um, an authentic critter replica prop. And if I do ever come across one that's an affordable price, yeah. I will purchase it. But I that is one of my main eBay searches, and it has been for many years. Cool. I mean, is that one of your sort of things is to collect horror merchandise because it it tends to always get sort of very hor- overpriced. I find. It, it does. It does. Um, it's expensive to collect anything, I, I would think, to, and it's especially to have a really nice collection. <laughs> and I've put together a fairly decent one, I guess, over the years. I don't have a whole lot of, like, authentic props, as it were. Yeah. But I'm happy with what I do have. I'm just things cu- I've picked up here and there, you know. I'm just curious to know what you want to do with a credit puppet. Is this just for your own amusement? or? Yeah, just to have it in the house. I think it would be hilarious. <laughs> Fair <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, back to the the Banshees, I love the fact that they're not really subtle about what they're doing. They're basically everything where they turn up, they tend to like get blown up. Yeah, they brandish their weapons. It's out there, and like, yeah, they're not subtle at all. <laughs> um, but by the second one, it's, it, they take on much more phallic imagery. Oh God, yes. Uh, we have that that future moment in in part two where. One of the band hunters who's now turned into a Playboy model right. has this most bizarre grin on her face as the rifle's expanding. And it's like, 
I, I was thinking of that same scene when you said that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you want to use your uh, academia to uh, give us some deeper knowledge on what's supposed <laughs> Wait, to be? I, I don't know if I can write off the cuff, but yeah, there's, there's some uh, Freudian Freudian psychology going on there, right? Is it, that be- <laughs> I don't even know what, what they were <laughs> I thinking. Would, I think that's... that's uh, the right theorist, yeah. <laughs> but I won't expand any further. But, I mean, the second one is directed by Mick Garris. It is, yes. Um, well, someone who I constantly forget did movies outside of Stephen King adaptations because he obviously yeah. did Desperation. He did The Stand. The Stand, um, yeah. And I mean, yeah, I think he did The Shining as well. Did he? I believe. So. Like the TV. Yeah, the TV event. movie, not the. Uh, not the Stanley Kubrick, obviously, but um, yeah, the, uh, the apparently the <coughs> King approved version. Yes, King's yes, been very yes. vocal about how he didn't like the Kubrick version. Yeah, um, yes, he did the did the Shining, and but he, I'm just looking. I, I enjoyed his Masters of Horror uh, series that he put together a few years back, 2007, maybe. Yes, yeah, I mean, I always I always questioned him being as being listed as Master of Horror. When that series came well, out, because especially you compare them to who else was there. I mean, you obviously had John Carpenter, yeah. Dario Argento, obviously. Uh, but I think his love for the monsters and his ability to speak so eloquently about them and his love for them, a lot how Joe Dante does, I think that puts him up there in the masters of horror class. Yeah, it was. I mean, obviously, when we go into second season, yes, some of the inclusions were a little more questionable. Um, I don't know what your thoughts on obviously Lucky McGee being classed as a master of horror. Mm-hmm. I think he's certainly earned that title, even though he'd only essentially done May at that point. Right. I feel he's continued to produce interesting works such as uh, The Woman or and yeah. Red. Interesting work. I I don't know if I would give him the the status of of master of horror, but. I, I enjoyed Sick Girl. I thought it was pretty good. Did you have a favorite story in Master of Horror? Just going off the oh. diversion here. Yeah, sorry. I, I, That's fine. Know. That's what we'll do. Um, <laughs> um, Dario Argento's Jennifer obviously st- stuck with me. I don't think it was... I don't know. It, it wasn't that great of a story, but it really stuck with me. Um, and I think that that happens a lot with horror. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be like the most well-put-together plot line or... Ex- explained event or whatever the case may be, but the images that it leaves you with, um, and it it gets under your skin in the best way possible. And I think that that did it for me. Pelts, which was also, um, was, um, Argento meatloaf just going off the rails. Oh yeah. Meatloaf, uh, skinning himself and then falling down an elevator shaft. Pine lights and the raccoons being called pine lights. I just, I really, I attached myself to that. And there's like, I, I go to, to little details and and those two definitely have those little details that I, I tend to gravitate towards and remember yeah. specifically. I think Cigarette Burns was uh, John Carpenter's one was the one that stood out for me the most. That was a great one, yeah. Um, and I think Dear Woman, but I think for just completely different reasons, just how daft yeah. it was. Yeah. Incident on and off in a mountain road. Oh, yes, definitely. That was a great time. Don Coscarelli's, um, yeah. I actually used the, the character Moonface from that episode, The Monster. Um, yeah. Back in my early days of writing, when I used to write uh, wrestling, do wrestling, e-wrestling fed, oh, where you cool. would, it's essentially like short story competitions, and 
the basis for my wrestler was Moonface from uh, Masters of Horror. Oh, nice. Very cool. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, obviously, Mick Garris again. He only did credits too. Um, mm-hmm. And then he never, again, didn't return to the series. I'm, it's a reoccurring theme. These, these writers come in and do one film and then go away. But he actually did the writing for um, for Critters 2 as well. I mean, this was for none from Batteries Not Included. And yeah. then obviously going to write The Fly 2. Uh, mm-hmm. Another very diverse film. I think it's yeah. now viewed more, more favorably than it was certainly when it was released. But with... When we get on to Critters 2, I mean, certainly Mick Garrett seems to approach it more with a certain, more of a comedy element, would you say? Yeah, I would I would agree with that statement, definitely. Um, but he also bring, brings back Charlie, mm-hmm. the town drunk who... The town, yeah. <laughs> who has what since... Yeah, drunk, I guess you want to call him. Yeah, I mean, he's since gone on to become like an intergalactic band hunter, despite being useless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, did you ever buy him as being like this Kreitz hunter that he obviously becomes over the course of the series. I mean, he goes from being this supporting sort of comic relief character to essentially right. becoming like our lead character by the like fed and four films. So he's so goofy. Don Opper, right? Yes. Don Opper. Um, he's so goofy. It's hard to his like appearance wise. It's, it's hard to buy him as the badass um, Kreitz hunter. But I think, I think he, he, gets into the role yeah I don't yeah. Th- yeah he doesn't disappear into the role but I think he handles it well I mean obviously I have to ask as well while we're on obviously the subject of Chris too at the end we okay spoiler alert um he does the kamikaze uh dive using the uh, spaceship into the giant critter bowl and I couldn't help but believe, think that his character was supposed to be permanently dead and that there been some sort of false, uh, some sort of negative feedback that sees him like come back at the end. But from what we can see from the character's interaction, it seems that he is sort of permanently dead and then mysteriously is like comes back into town with like the parachute attached. And I always felt that it was kind of like a cop out, really. Yeah, a little bit. I never really thought about it, but I, I think that, that that would be safe to assume. Yeah. I mean, or just kind of bad writing, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I do love that critter ball. That thing is too cool. I love the bit where he runs the guy over and he's just like a twitching skeleton. Yeah, that's great. I think that, great, again, great practical effects. They still hold up. Yeah, I think that and uh, th- I think that scene and obviously when they're in the fast food restaurant, those are my uh, the two sort of favorite scenes of the of that uh, of the whole film really. I think of the whole franchise, the franchise as a whole really. I think. Number two has got certainly got more elements I sort of gravitate towards, and I think it was only when rewatching it this morning that I realised just how good it is. Because yeah, I think I I viewed it unfairly because I had such a a love for the first film, which mm-hmm. has such intensity as well. Especially when you have like the scenes where they're they're trapped in the bedroom and you see the like the giant critter arm come through, um, <laughs> and it really does have this this sort of real intensity to it, and. There's a scene where they're going through it and it gets me every time where the cat jumps out. Yeah. And even though I know it's coming, it still gets me every time. So, yeah. I mean, just looking at these, the first two films, I mean, did you have any particular favorite moments or bits that you can like, look out for? Um, well, like I said, the subtitles. I like when, um, when the critter eats the firecracker and explodes. That's really cool. <laughs> um, like you said, the, when the, when the, um, 
intergalactic bounty hunters get here and they kind of transform into like the hair rocker guys. I mean, all of it is just, it's very visually appealing to all of my tastes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say that, you know, it's, it, it has everything that I like in a, in a mid eighties monster extravaganza. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and they're scary. They really are. Oh like, yeah. Imagine one of them like coming at you and those little red glowing eyes and the, the <laughs> rows and rows of teeth. Like they're terrifying, but they're, they're funny and, and we just can't get enough of them. I've got a couple of posters around here that are critters related. I think that, yeah, this film is also to blame with one of my more irrational fears, such as like, I don't like swimming in the ocean because I watched Jaws as a kid. Right. Um, and I don't like uh, dropping my keys by the car because uh, the scene in the first film where the guy gets dragged under the car by the critters. The car, yeah. <laughs> I had this constant fear that that's going to happen one of these days, so. That's funny. I have a fear of when I like brush my teeth and I go to spit the toothpaste out and I come back up, somebody's going to be behind me in the mirror. Because <laughs> that's just my overactive horror movie mind yeah. working all of the time. <laughs> so, I mean, did you, funny. I mean, when you obviously were like coming out watching horror movies, did you find that like so much of like your life from that point has been sort of affected by things you saw in horror movies and that it, it tends to like your mind even as an adult constantly keep, seems to keep going back to these moments yeah of course like you know I'm in the sauna and at the gym and um, it's like quiet and there's like nobody down there this is like recently and there's nobody down there and it's quiet like you can hear like water dripping it's all the way in the basement of the gym and I'm like somebody could come in here and slit my throat right now it would be perfect like it's like I said it's my <laughs> horror movie mind I say like, perfect for them, not for you. But not for me. Perfect for for any kind of like you know killer situation in like an eighties eighties slasher or something. You know, yeah. I, like every and it, but it doesn't scare me. I it which is it makes me laugh. I'm like, oh, that's just my over my my over horror movie imagination mind working because I have this steady constant diet of horror films and horror literature. You know, that's just. It's what I go back to to entertain myself, I guess, when I'm bored in the sauna. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm just admire <laughs> the fact that you can just dedicate yourself to just horror films. I mean, yeah, totally. <laughs> I just, uh, I, especially these days, it, it seems to be becoming increasingly harder to be a uh, horror fan. I think there's very few so directors difficult. that are still sort of churn out good work. I mean, we obviously have like the Soska sisters who obviously gave us American Mary. Love them. Um, yeah. You got Adam green to an extent. Yeah. To an um, extent. It was okay. Yeah. And uh, those things, but it's, it's so hard. Every time I see horror, modern horror, it's very sterile. There's, uh, there's, there's nothing, nothing there. Or it's constantly a throwback or a remake or everything yeah, too it's, pretty. It's, it's disappointing, and that's why I constantly find myself going back to my little rubber monsters or to, you know, grindhouse air films or to, you know, just favorites that I know I'm going to enjoy and keep yeah. enjoying for many years, yeah. With, with these uh, these these two two films, they kind of all the high watermark for the, for the franchise. It's all kind of downhill from here. From there, yeah. Um, I mean, there's obviously been talk 
uh, for many years about them coming back and rebooting the Critters franchise. Would this be something you would like to see? Would you like to see a remake of these? these no, movies? absolutely not. <laughs> I would not want to see that. Same with the Gremlins remake or reimagining. It just it needs to just be left alone. Those are those are our monsters, our generation's monsters, and I don't think that anybody could do them justice as they've been done in the past. So no, I would be very, very, very disappointed if somebody were to remake or reimagine Gremlins or Critters <laughs> for a modern audience. Yeah. Just based on what we just said too, because all most modern horror is just disappointing and. You know, even like with the with the new Ghostbusters coming out, you know, Ghostbusters, it's up there too because that's monsters and ghosts and there's it's funny, but there's the horror element. It fits into this whole subgenre yeah. that we're talking about, and it's like I don't know, I I'm torn. I I want to see the all female cast, but it's kind of like just leave it alone, you know. Let it, let our generation have that, and then you know, give these give the kids today something else i don't know not, yeah. not my thing <laughs> find your own franchise to screw. yeah mind your own find your own franchise um yeah and i think one of the things i love about this this, this uh this film and i think this is something that's certainly lost in in new sort of horror movies in the fact that while the critics are essentially these sort of uh mindless creatures they are kind of assholes as well we've also yeah, mentioned totally. the fact that they have these humor elements but we see them fly away, and then you think, oh, they're just going to escape. But no, they blow up the family house. Yeah. And it's like such a <laughs> dick move. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like, did you have to do that? <laughs> no, but why not, you know? Yeah. That's, and, you know, when these were coming out, and I was watching them, and I was discovering horror movies, I was also discovering punk rock. And I think that that's a very punk rock attitude like they have like the the monsters have a very punk rock attitude they're like fuck you we're gonna do whatever we want <laughs> despite the fact that that's not like uh, socially acceptable yeah. so there's you know that's why you see so many punks that are in horror so <laughs> i definitely think the correlation is not something that is i don't know what the word i'm looking for it's it, there's definitely a correlation okay. there i mean you you i think you're the first person i know who's drawn a link between punk rock and critters so. <laughs> well <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> um i'm just thinking of there's anything else in these, these these first two films that we obviously haven't discussed already but i mean you obviously the only sort of bugbear and i think this goes throughout the series and the fact that we are introduced essentially to what the critters can do but they keep changing the powers from film to film. We obviously have the paralyzing needle darts that they can shoot out and yeah. the teeth and the fact that they can turn into uh, into little hedgehog-type balls and roll around. But yeah, I love that. <laughs> in the first film, they can grow in size, and they don't do that in the, sec- the second film. Okay, yeah, I didn't remember that. Good um, the second one, we see them do the giant critter ball. Um, again, they don't do that again. Nope. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, again, from there, it's just they change color and uh, they did by the third and fourth ones. I don't think they do anything particularly special apart from change design um, and kind right. of lose some of the humor element, I found. Well, anytime any of our monsters go to space, it's never a good deal. <laughs> no, and uh, obviously, that's going to be something we're going to discuss in the end. Uh, we should, yeah, we should do a whole episode on. When the monsters go to space. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's what, 
when we get you on again, Jen, that's what we do. We just do space, space and Hawaii, yeah, I, I'm where franchises go to die. If you've run out of ideas, then you either go space or Hawaii. Yeah, send send your monster to space. <laughs> um, I mean, there's only one franchise that's obviously being that case, and that's uh, Jason. No, Jason went to space. Jason went to space in that part X, uh, yeah. and then came back and still going strong. Yeah, he's still going strong. Yeah. You no, know, eventually someone will pick up my, my, uh, I don't know, my 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 pitch of uh, putting Jason in in the mountain range where it's snowing because I just want to see blood on snow. No, blood on snow is great. I I don't think there's a horror fan out there that would disagree with you on that. That's what I want to see. I want to see Crystal. It's uh, Crystal Lake, but it's in winter. Oh. So like the winter maintenance crew. Yeah, um, now we're talking. And that that's why that's the only thing I can think that's not been done. I mean, he's obviously fought Freddy. He's yeah, obviously great. gone into he space. Went, he went, of course. You know, you, he's my favorite, so. So which one, sorry? Huh? Uh, which one's your favorite, sorry? Uh, Jason. Jason's my favorite. Yes. He's, yeah. I mean, he's like Michael, um, obviously in the fact that he's the silent killer. Love him. Um, and, you know, he managed to have this very natural progression over the series. I mean, obviously from part two onwards, because part yeah. one's his mother, mm-hmm. who is just a whole another breed of wonderful. Um, oh, God, so good. I, I was just thinking the other day how much I love um, when she's there doing the get her, mommy, get her. Yeah. Um, or when she gets decapitated at the end, I just how much I love that so much. Oh, it's so great. It's uh, one of my favorite scenes of all time. The only thing I, that I would also insist on is that we bring back Kane Hodder. Oh, absolutely. We have to have the raging bull, Jason. Jason yeah, he is Jason to me. Um, Jason got cool. Yeah, and I I love the fact that when you see Kane Hodder at conventions, you see like the other people panels there, and they're doing the arm round the fan sort of pictures. Yeah. Or with the Ravel the Beast. Kane's strangle, yeah. Yeah, Kane's like just throttling people left, right, and center. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and like, when I saw Kane, I was like, I don't want to have like me shaking hands with Kane Hodder. I want to be throttled by Kane Hodder. Yeah, definitely, of course. <laughs> um, but there's also a band, the Kane Hodder Experience. Yeah. They're a Canadian death metal band, and apparently they phoned him up, and he was he was quite happy with, with that. So. Yeah, he seems like a nice dude. Yeah. But yeah, we're going to take a quick break though. When we return though, we are going to look at the, I don't know how to put this, the the lower end of the scale, the, the darker <laughs> days of the Critter franchise. Uh, <laughs> when we look at the, I believe, director VHS, um, parts three and four, which were shot back to back. And we're going to uh, be taking a stiff drink and uh, braving those ones <laughs> in just a minute. In a world where podcasts already seem to address every imaginable subject, one man broke new ground with a seemingly random obsession about exploding helicopters in movies. He was a podcaster on the edge, a maverick broadcaster who played by his own rules. Now, he has a last chance to talk about the strange way helicopters explode in film. Exploding Helicopter, available on iTunes and Podomatic now. Think you know about chopper fireballs? Think again. And we're back. Uh, Stu joining me in the studio today is uh, Jen. Hello. In the first half of the show, we obviously looked at Critters 1 and 2. Now we move on to the lower end of the Critters <laughs> franchise as we look at Critters 3 and 4. 
two films that were shot back to back in released in 1991. There was something of an excitement to see these two films come out uh, almost simultaneously. And being a young kid, and you saw the poster for Critics Free, and being a fan of the first two films, it was sort of like, oh great, and more Critics movies. And then shortly after you saw Critics 4, and you thought, wow, this is great, we're going to get loads of Critics movies. Yeah. But no. <laughs> they basically shot these two back to back, and that was it. And since then... Shame, really. <laughs> I could have taken a Critters 9 or 10. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I think it's... But they pretty much killed this series dead with these two entries. I think you're right. Um, I think... I was just starting with Critics 3. I mean, this is directed by uh, Christine Peterson. And she's, I think, when we look at her filmography, I think the most noteworthy thing that she did after Critics 3, because this was her third film, um, and then the most noteworthy thing that she did after it was Kickboxer 5 in 1995. Oh, excellent. <laughs> um, but she's actually probably better known as like a first unit, a second unit director. I mean, that when you look at the films that she's worked on, it's a lot more impressive because we've got things like The Exterminator 2, uh, Chopping Mall, The Ladies Club, uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, as well as Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, and finally in 1990, Tremors. So she's definitely a genre director. but She is. Yeah, she has the pedigree. Yeah, it's just she unfortunately got lumbered with this film. Oh, don't give it such a... It's not that bad. I have a, I had a really good time watching it recently. I'm glad you did. <laughs> I certainly didn't re-watching this. I think that if they are at their funniest, probably in three. Okay. I mean, the most noteworthy thing for most people about Critics 3 is the fact that this was the acting debut of Leonardo DiCaprio, yep. who here stars as token whiny kid. Yep. Um, Josh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this time, the plot moves away from the little village that we obviously had uh, in the first two films, Grover's Bend, I believe, mm-hmm. as we're now moved into a high-rise building. Um, it's really kind of saying something when the best part of the movie is the flashback to the events of the previous two movies. <laughs> as when Charlie appears, we get this wonderful flashback sequence, and I remember as a kid just constantly rewinding and playing that bit again, because it was kind of like the best of uh, moments from part two especially the montage yeah. yeah the little montage scene from there we basically for this uh, family of three we got we've got Anne, uh johnny a little brother and clifford who's the father and they basically unwittingly managed to take this the batch of critters back to the high rise where we've obviously got the sleazy landlord and the maintenance man and basically it's just a real sort of scummy sort of building and obviously the critters hatch chaos ensues that mm-hmm. is the long and short of it, and basically we just... I don't know if they were trying to do do Gremlins again with this film, or if they were I trying to I think they were something. trying to do... Okay, help me out. Um, I think it reminds me so much of Troll. The okay. building. The building looks like like the building in Troll. Like, there's the old lady. I mean, that she's married. Obviously, she's not a witch, like, in Troll or whatever. But... Like, it's just, the whole thing, like, smacks of Troll to me. The basement, every, like, it's been, it's been a minute since I've seen Troll, but I don't know, it really, which came first? Do you know off the top of your head? Was it the Critters 3 or Troll? Oh, the trouble with Troll is that it wasn't um, Troll to you begin with. It was, 
It was like, a different movie and they renamed it Troll. That's why Troll and Troll 2 have nothing to do with each, to do with each other. Yeah. And Troll 3 has even less to do with each other. But I don't even Troll... think I've seen Troll 3. I didn't even know there was a Troll 3. Yeah, it's uh, Killer Plants. Oh, yes. Um, I don't know about that. I've never seen it, though. Yeah, it features the most remarkable model work possible of a tiny little exploding helicopter game caught in what appears to be a tree root. <laughs> um, it's pretty damn awful. Um, but, you know, if you're a completist and have to watch all the trolls, then I right. guess. But, um, no, to answer your question, Troll 1 uh, came out in 1986. Okay. So. This is a few years later. Yeah. 90. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if they were ripping it off. I mean, obviously, Critters itself was. Do we say it's a rip-off of Gremlins? Because officially it did come out before Gremlins. It only got I made think... because Gremlins got yeah. paid money. I, yeah, we spoke about that before. I think that um, it was definitely riding Gremlins' coattails. I wouldn't say it was a ripoff. As we said in the first part, I mean, there were so many little monster movies that came out after Gremlins. Or you found films cramming in little monsters, such as the original Ghoulies. Right. Which, I remember watching Ghoulies and you see the box art and you think, oh, this is great, this is going to be a little monster movie. And no, it's like Ghoulies is like a $5 puppet they just crammed in this movie that has no purpose at all. <laughs> um, I'm getting a ghoulies tattoo on Friday, by the way. Are you? Which yeah, one the, are you having? The cat monster. Okay. Yeah, the cat ghoulie. Okay, I have to ask then. So, you, well, obviously, if you're getting it tattooed, you're a fan of the ghoulie series. Yeah, I am, yeah. So, that'll be... It's really exciting. I can't wait. So, what is it that appeals to you about the ghoulie series of just little monsters again? Just because they're, they're funny and they're nasty and they're cool looking and I like the practical effects. And they're just, they're like our generation of, of watching direct uh, VHS horror movies, you yeah, know? Yeah. There are monsters. There are universal monsters or there are radioactive monsters. There are generations nasty mm. monsters. <laughs> I know what you mean. I've, you know? I think, I think this is the problem I have with direct-to-DVD direct horror. Um, back in the day when you'd had people like Charles Brand Productions and that churning out like Puppet Master 4 and 5 and whatever, um, mm-hmm. you almost you had guarantee of its practical effects. So it would be, there'd be something of presence. Same, you had like things like Demonic Toys, right. um, which my money still features one of the most mean-spirited kills I've seen in a little monster movie um, of the baby with the nail. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen that in ages. Oh, it's, it's so mean-spirited, that baby is. <laughs> and I went into it thinking, oh, this would be like another light-hearted romp, because, you know, it's got that yeah. sort of connection to, to Puppet Master. Right. Um, Did you see the new Krampus? Which one? There's been about four the, releases the last year. The Michael Doherty Kramp, directed Krampus. It came out last year here in the States. Was it in the cinema release one? Yes. Oh, no, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, well, when you do see it, um, there is definitely um, some nods to Demonic Toys and Charles Band, like Full Moon Entertainment yeah. type stuff. And I don't think, like, since it, it got like a mass release here, I don't think that most people would pick up on that. But I did immediately. I was thinking, oh, yeah, Demonic Toys right away. And then I saw some other, like, genre people talking about it, and they definitely got the correlation too. But it's fun. I think you'd enjoy it. That's good. I'm, I always love it when you have a more mainstream project and the writers are clearly like 
geeky sort of horror fanboys and they cram yeah. in little references and stuff. Um, I mean, at the moment, uh, I'm playing uh, Life is Strange and you can tell the the writers of the game are clearly Twin Peaks fans because there's so many nods yeah. to that. And uh, there's also really random nods to the likes of Cannibal Holocaust in it, which is pretty cool. Oh, cool. Very cool. I love it. And it's done in a nice sort of way, unlike, you know, the Eli Roth version of Subtlety, where you just basically rip off the film and cram a different title on it. Right. <laughs> yeah. We knew where you were going, Eli, as soon as you said Green Inferno. Exactly. We knew exactly where you were going with that. <laughs> Which uh, I, let's just go off on a quick tangent, right? Yeah, please. But we saw that, we went to see it in the theater when it, when it came out here, and we were expecting this, like, totally badass, like, very gory you know, homage, and I could have taken a lot more, honestly. <laughs> okay, can I just can I just say, you saw the words Eli Roth directs, <laughs> and you thought, oh, this is going to give me a badass romp. Well, maybe. It got, set, like, the, you know, or maybe I fell victim to the... Uh, the hype. To the hype, to the publicity, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think Eli Roth has the potential to be a good director, I agree with you. Unfortunately, Eli Roth also thinks you can combine sex comedies and horror. And <laughs> he also believes that he's the the Tarantino version of the horror genre. Yes, he does. Now, while you may be friends and run with Tarantino, it does not mean that you are Tarantino. <laughs> and this is something that annoys me uh, intensely about it, as well as the fact, as we've talked about on several other shows, is the fact that Eli Roth is now decided that he's going to go after the critics, which is always an interesting move for your career, because he basically feels that critics aren't qualified to judge his work, because most critics don't go to university to study to be a film critic. It's just what they do. They enjoy films, they comment on films, and they give opinion. But unfortunately, he seems to take said opinion as being gospel, and that whatever we say as critics or bloggers somehow directly affects him uh, rather than it just being, you know, one, one man's opinion. So he's, um, he's kind of going down that uh, M. Night Shanahan route of, yeah. of self-destruction, really. It's, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, At least as far as us genre fans are concerned. Yeah. I mean, I was so glad when he, he uh, quit Meg. I mean, Meg is... Probably one of my favorite pulpy series. Yeah, um, Mike turned me on to that years ago. And I mean, who? Do, I mean, anyone who's read the original, the the book version of Jaws, we know that it's kind of a pulpy novel, but it's about the people of this town. It's less about the shark. Right. Um, it's more about the actual people. Now, the book Meg is essentially written as if Jaws, the film, had been made into a book, but perhaps cranked up slightly because it's a prehistoric totally shark. Totally cranked up, though. It's, it's way be better if it's a Megalodon. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, Steve Alton, who writes the Meg series, he's written other great books as well. It's just Meg is like his main series, and right. somehow he's managed to constantly increase the levels of insanity and introduce different prehistoric monsters and yeah, it's great. great scenes as it's gone on. I mean, I've only got I think Hell's Aquarium is the one I've, I've left to read. I think that's the last one I have left to read, too. I've read um, them all over the years. But, yeah, you recommended those to me a long time ago. And I've been obsessed ever since. So thank you. I'm glad I recommended something somebody likes. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> um, but, I mean, obviously back to 
Crits 3. I mean, obviously, yeah. we said that this is coming out at a time where we we get practical effects. It's not like now where we see direct-to-DVD horror and it's going to be CGI effects. It's going to be another Jason clone that we right. see. It's not like when I see Drek on the uh, horror channel, like Bikini Girls on Ice, and I see some guy with just heavy breathing trying to do the whole Jason thing, and it's like, no, Jason had presence. Yeah, he had reason for what he did. Yes, it was very simplistic reasons for what he was doing. Essentially, the same reasons that Cornish farmers yell at you for being on your land. He just took a more violent approach to right. people being on his land. I like that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but obviously, with uh, Critics Three, again, it's practical fiction, and you know, the first two Critics movies, I've, I would say they were better known for when they were released on VHS and the cinematic release, I would say. Most people discovered them through VHS, so the fact right. Critics 3 was coming out directed to VHS, same as Critics 4, there was no sort of shame, there's no sort of stigma about it. I think people were less bothered about and less up to speed as what was coming out in the cinema and what was coming out in VHS back then, would you say? Yeah, I would think so. I, have, I mean, I have to obviously question, because I was a VHS like. Uh, kid, I was you know always hanging around the video store and oh same yeah. Um, I knew more about what was at the video store than what was coming out in the cinema. Yeah, probably. I would say the same about myself. Um, uh. I went to the movies a lot, but it was like I would just see like whatever the blockbuster was, and then I would go to the video store, and that's where I would get my horror from. You yeah. know. So oh, I mean, while I knew Chris Street when it's on VHS, I saw it years later when it came on to onto TV, and I was like. I was kind of excited, you know. I, it was it was a Critters movie I hadn't seen, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, as I said, the most exciting part for myself for Critters three was the recap of Critters two. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they're trying to do something with with Critters three. The main problem they have with it is just that, as with Critters four, it's not scary. No. Um, and so they clearly realise it's not scary, so they try to go the goofy route but uh-huh. <laughs> it, it doesn't work it's not like the same as in evil dead free army of darkness where sam raimi clearly realizes after the first 20 minutes this isn't scaring anyone let's just go, Let's just go goofy, insane. Yeah. so we we have all these like goofy gremlin style sequences the main standout one of which is the the critics basically take over this kitchen and one eats a huge bowl of chili and farts yeah um <laughs> Yeah, the one is like pouring flour on the other three, and they're just like dancing around. <laughs> yeah. And then the other, there's another one that he drinks like um, dish detergent. <coughs> Excuse me. He eats, he eats dish detergent and he lays around and farts out the bubbles. Um, and I think we have another. There's an earlier scene where one of the critters gets bleach thrown in its face, so it has like a blonde streak. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He rolls through bleach accidentally. Oh right. And, uh, like when the when the busybody lady whatever her name is i can't remember she like goes down to check on on the super frank and she spills bleach and then one rolls out the bleach streak one he rolls out of the um of the dryer and that's when he gets his streak <laughs> it really continues the idea of critters having different haircuts yeah obviously number 2 we have the uh the laser blast bold cut Right. He has the uh, little the critter version of a comb over, I guess. We obviously yeah. have the blonde streak in three, um, and then in four we have the laser haircut as well. Oh, I don't more remember of a... that one. <laughs> yeah, it, he basically gets the same deals in number two, but for some reason uh, a comb over is quite uh, 
a quite a attractive look for critters, apparently, because they don't seem to care. No. As uh, in Critters 2 responds with bitching, and he looks at himself with a bowl and comb over. <laughs> the kitchen scene is probably, as I said, outside of my favourite moment, the the one moment where I wasn't like trying to wait for this one to end. Um, we obviously have the larity of the, the woman who falls falls off the top of the building is basically hanging from this line oh, and yeah. swinging back and forth trying to get to trying the phone. Trying to get to the phone, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the film ends as well on the most frustrating of endings. It's strange. The ending is strange um, because it's, it's roll credits, it's end, you know, end scene, then it's roll credits, and then you get, like, crucial plot points after the credits, are like, during the credits. It's so strange. I don't think I've ever seen anything else like it. And then, you, of course, the big to-be-continued. That's the bit that pissed me off probably <laughs> as a kid, because it's sort of like, you're watching this on TV, you got no guarantee part four's going to be on next week, Yeah. and you're trying to find, I think, trying to find a, VA, a video store at that point that held a copy of Crits 4 to myself, it wasn't going to happen. So the fact that we got Charlie there at the end, he's got the last two Crytegs, and this big containment unit falls from the sky as he runs away, um, and it flashes up with to be continued. It was such a pisser. Oh, right. I know. It's so stupid. And it's kind of like when you, you watch like old B-movies, like you watch The, uh, the Blob, or Dinosaurus, and it came up with a question mark at the end, and it's like, does that mean we get a sequel? Um, <laughs> and more often than not, we didn't, but it was just so frustrating as a kid to think, wow, they're going to make another one, even though, cause especially when you're a kid, you watch like some from the 1950s, and you, you have no concept of time. Right. So you're watching it, it's like, oh yeah, they're definitely going to make this, despite the fact that like 30 years have passed and no one has attempted to make a sequel to <laughs> this garbage movie you're watching. Yeah. I mean, did you have like, as a young movie watcher, any of those sort of frustrating experiences, or what, like, um, like wanting a sequel and not not receiving one? Yeah. That um. Mm, let me think. I don't. I don't really know. Um. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking now. I would have liked another couple of Critters movies. I probably at the time, I would have wanted a couple more Gremlins movies. But now I definitely don't. You no. know. Now that I'm like an adult horror fan i'm like all right leave my monsters alone yeah but um no i can't think i can't really think because you know when i was i was loving freddie and jason and all those guys they came out with another sequel every other year so i was i guess i was content with with the slashers coming out at such a breakneck pace that i wasn't too concerned about the monsters getting their sequels in if that makes sense yeah i understand what you mean i mean I'm excited about Chris, uh, not Chris Free, because we already have that. Um, a Gremlins Free, I would, I would like to see it. Um, I, think- I think I may be, it may be part of a very small group that wants to see a Gremlins Free, but I don't know. I just had so much fun with the second one, especially. Yeah, I knew that. Um, but I kind of want to see more. I, I don't know why, um, and I hope it, it would have to be with practical effects. Of course. Um, and it would have to be with the Joe Dante. Warner Brothers infused humor as well. Yeah, of course, yeah. And I mean, uh, just to go off on another tangent here again, it's just that I was watching uh, the Gremlins two and listening to the commentary the other day, and Joe Dante's there saying that with the cartoon opening, because you obviously have the Daffy and Bugs opening, 
that mm-hmm. originally it was supposed to go on longer, but the the producers were afraid that people would like watch it and think they're watching a cartoon rather than the Gremlins movie. I'm thinking, if you paid money to go to the cinema or you bought your VHS of Gremlins two, um, how are you going to think that you wandered into a cartoon? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it, again, with Gremlins two, it it's so it had so many of those moments where it just like seemed to break the full four in a way. Where yeah. you have that cartoon opening, the film breaking in the middle. With the um, whole fucking bit, yeah. We I know. Can... Yeah, Chris never attempted anything like that. They moments of humor, and uh, especially with Charlie, who's once again back. Here we see Charlie now really taking the reins of the franchise. The bounty hunters have long since gone. Yeah. Um, and he's still on Earth for some reason. We're not sure why he's still on Earth. Um, he's sure. Well, he, why? <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's he's there to like fight the critters or whatever, but it's not that many. There's about yeah. five left, and yeah, and they're gonna be extinct. So that's why he gets in trouble with the council or whatever the intergalactic. I don't even remember what it was. The but, intergalactic council. Yeah, the inter, like whatever that means, and he gets in trouble with the with the council because he was trying to eradicate them. So he has to save them. What? <laughs> Yeah, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, obviously, I think you obviously love it a lot more than, than I, I do. do. Really I, mean, like, I do. I had a good time uh, revisiting it the other day, and it's it's a good time. I think the critters are funny and nasty and cute all at the same time, but I think that about them throughout. So you know, with the with the troll kind of setting backdrop, it's just. It's just kind of a, I guess, I, I do like it, but it is kind of a drop in the bucket as far as little rubber monsters are concerned. It's not nearly up there, you know, with yeah. Gremlins or, or the first critters or what have you. Okay. I mean, I'm obviously, when we get to the end of this, I'm, I'm going to ask you to put them in order. So I'll be interested to see right. <laughs> how they all fall. Okay, cool. Um, I mean, obviously, moving on to Critters 4, uh, this saw. A change of director again. This time Rupert Harvey takes over the reins. I mean, probably better known as a producer and writer. I mean, he gave us Nightmare on Elm Street 5, um, Pump Up the Volume, the the good version of The Blob from 1988. <laughs> um, you don't like the Steve McQueen version? Uh, it's For its time, it's got its charms. I love it. But I think because it moves so damn slow... Um, yeah. is, is this is this more of a creeping horror? And I think the pacing of the film annoyed me as a kid, because okay. it's really sort of the last quarter that you have the great scenes such as like where it covers the diner or when it goes yeah. into the uh, it goes to the vents in the in the cinema. Yeah. Up until that point, the most exciting thing that you have is when it crawls up the hobo's arm and he pokes it with a stick. So I really love. You can go to you know every year in West Virginia here in the state. Um, they have a blob fest and they have it in the town where the blob was filmed with the Steve McQueen version. Okay. And you can go there and they, and it's like, it's basically like a horror movie convention that weekend. Yeah. And then they have at the end, everybody recreates the running out of the theater scene. So you, you sit in the theater, you watch the blob and then you run out. <laughs> I've yet to go. It's about a six hour drive from here. Okay. But um, it seems like a fun event. I'd like to do that before, yeah. you know, it's on my list. Again, this is the problem I'm having with a lot of revival screenings at the moment, is that you have all these jaded movie viewers going in, and they're laughing at the wrong things. Yeah. They're making fun of, like, the settings or 
the outfits rather than the unintentional humor like when you watch like Plan 9 from Out of Space and like the yeah. three stones get knocked over or you watch Robot Monster and the fact that it's a gorilla costume with a goldfish bowl on its head yeah um they do, they they just come you just I constantly seem to be like surrounded by these uh, jaded audiences and it just kills my buzz. <laughs> Although as I mentioned I think on one of the previous shows there's a film festival that I saw uh, pop up and basically you can get them for free but you have to pay to get out. And uh-huh. the longer you last the less money you have to pay. Yeah. Um and they basically bombard you with like terrible movies and like That sounds um, pretty fun. Lost footage and stuff. I'm, I'd be interested in that. <laughs> but, I mean, you're in like the key location, obviously being stateside for these festivals. Yeah. Um, here, the sort of rare, few and far between. And I think I don't know if we just don't have the audience for them because I mean, if you watch the documentary about Troll Two, yeah, and you see the scenes where they go to Birmingham, and the, the the guy who plays the father is just so bummed out by the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if we just don't have the audiences or whether it's just someone that's just mainly kept some major states and no one outside that's really attempting to try it. I don't know, but uh, we just never seem to get the same sort of uh, festivals that you guys have in the States. Yeah, so. that's unfortunate. Um, look into the Dead by Dawn Festival. It's in Edinburgh. That's a film festival that I've always wanted to come over and, and go to, and it seems pretty cool. But that's the only one I know of in the UK, and that's that one's in Scotland, and it's a bit far from where where our home base is over there. Um, but I'd still like to do that. So check that one out, Dead by Dawn. With Rupert Harvey, I mean, he is responsible for writing both Critters 3 and this one. So clearly whoever was in charge of Critters 4 decided, well, after the sterling job you did with Part 3, why don't you have a go at directing Part 4? <laughs> and this to date remains his sole directing credit. For those who have seen Critters 4, it probably become very obvious. But at the end of uh, Critters 3, as we, all, as we explained already, uh, Charlie's there with the last two Crytegs, and mm. the Galactic Council has said, no, you're not going to kill them, because for whatever reason, we've now decided that we have to save this species. Which makes no sense in this, the previous three films, they've been all about destroying them. I know, it makes no sense whatsoever, but that I guess that's part of the fun. <laughs> um, and the other interesting fact is the fact that it's Erg. Is I'm pronouncing that right? Um... It basically is a bounty hunter friend from the, the first two films played by uh, Terrence Mann. Oh, um, yeah. The counsellor. Yeah. Um, Terrence Mann and Don Keith Opper really having the rare distinction of being the only people to appear in all four films. Um, being the fourth film and seeing as they're out of ideas, it means that the franchise really has one or two places to go, as we've explained in the first half. And they can either go to Hawaii or space, and they decide to go to space. and <laughs> Because space is, of course, the place you go for all franchises to die. Have you noticed, though, that whenever you do send a franchise to space, very few actually make it back? I know. We need to do an entire episode on that. We talked about that before. Uh, um, yeah, that would be a fun episode. <laughs> I'm trying to think who's gone in space. Leprechaun's gone in space, again That's with part four. Jason. Pinhead. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I had again was four because that was Bloodlines. And um, yeah, and that got an Alan Smithy. Like the whoever directed that one didn't want anything to do with it. So there you go. I still got to see four. Oh, you never seen it? I've never seen four, and it's annoying because it never comes on TV. 
Um, <laughs> it's never on Netflix, although if you've got Netflix US, it's on there. Okay. Um, but we got I Netflix. have it. I own it. <laughs> See, like, a, I, like a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> For some reason, I think many sort of channels over here seem to think that Hellraiser only had volumes, had one to three, and then it ended. They kind of skip over everything that came after it. Right. So, I mean, they're up to, I think, part 10 now or something stupid like that? Something, something ridiculous. I lost track a long time ago. <laughs> um, and it's now sort of the case where Pinhead, who they keep trying to turn into this figurehead for the series. Right. They 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 keep writing him into these movies and he has no place to be there. <laughs> so you have these in, occasionally interesting plots and then Pinhead just randomly shows up. I but, know. It's sad. <laughs> yeah. So, obviously... Uh, now Charlie's frozen, he's sent into space. Um, we flash forward in time. Um, not that it really years. matters at all. 50 years, something like that. Something like that. It's, it gets to the point where you're just sort of just going for the motion. I mean, this also is the longest running film. Of, is it? Of it has oh. the longest run time. Previous two, they ran about an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, this one ran, runs in an hour and 40 minutes. Okay. Seeing as you only, (laughs) yeah, you have. I just want to highlight the fact that while you may think, oh, an hour and forty minutes, it's gonna be like balls of all like critter action. They're gonna be, it's gonna be like aliens. We're gonna have Mm -hmm. hordes of critters. No, you have two critters. That's it. That's it. The only two left. And one gets a haircut as well, as we mentioned already. Oh yeah. (laughs) So yeah, basically, uh, Charlie's in in space and he's awoken on this space station and obviously the critters hatch, chaos ensues and minor B list characters get killed. This is a painful experience, this film. Mm-hmm. Um, I really am struggling to think of any positive uh, thing to say about this film because the critters, while in the previous film they've sort of gained abilities or or whatnot. Here they actually lose a bit as they no longer can shoot the, the barbs from the back. Um, yeah. Again, no reasons given. Well, we talked about that before. They do things in the movies that they don't do again, or... <laughs> yeah, but normally they give us something to replace it. Yeah. They don't just, like, take something away and not give us anything. Not give us anything back. We demand that as viewers. <laughs> <laughs> I think the we most exciting... that as genre fans. Uh, I think the most exciting thing we have here is the fact that we get um, a junkie in space who goes in, who tries to raid like the the station pharmacist, and it's just like wall to wall pills. And we have that wonderful, colorful rainbow of pills on the floor as he's being stalked by one of these slow moving critters. Um, <laughs> I mean, just obviously looking on the 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 um, cases of these last two films. I'm feeling really more cheated the more I actually study these films now because on the cover for number three, we've got what appears to be three critters flying. So seemingly there were promised flying critters. That doesn't happen. Um, critters four, we've got, let me see, four critters here, but we only have two. Yep. So I don't know. I'm, and uh, it also has the horrible tagline in space they love to hear you scream. Obviously, practical effects-wise, I have to say the critters this time are looking a little haggard. They're blue. (laughs) (laughs) Why are they blue, Jen? I don't know. (laughs) They are looking haggard. They're looking looking pretty long in the tooth. They've had it. 
I wonder who has those props to this day. <laughs> I wonder if they still exist. What, the blue critters or mm-hmm. just the critters in general? Any of them. <laughs> like, who has those props? I told you, like we mentioned earlier. Yeah. About how I, I do look, I do, that's one of my main searches on eBay, and, you know, they occasionally pop up, but it's hard to tell if they're, like, real, or, you know, where's the certificate of authenticity there, you know? Who who still has that stuff in their garage somewhere, you know? That, well, that, uh, that's what I want to know. Okay. I mean, I, a while back, uh, well, many moons ago now, I was, I found, met the guy who has the, one of the, the prop pikes from this british horror movie called the pike okay and he, he wanted some insane amount of money for this this fiberglass pike that had been sitting in his shed for years i'm not familiar with it yeah basically there was this period i think in like the mid 90s where uh two different film studios hit upon the idea to have um like a freshwater version of jaws okay and it would feature a killer pike okay um oh like the fish i yeah I yeah the, the fish I don't know what I was thinking. I was thinking like a hike, like not a fish, yeah, like, the, like a pole. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes, a killer pole is going to go and attack. But then again, <laughs> then again, we have had rubber. You know, the tiny tower with big dreams. Oh yeah, the the Robert the tire. God, I like that movie. I don't. I know there's people out there who didn't. And I liked it. We did like, that. You're telling me about the Pike. Yeah, the Pike, um, it was his failed production uh, that we had had over here. And um, in Canada, they actually managed to finish their one. It's called Psycho Pike. Oh, okay. Um, you can get get uh, bootlegs of it. And it is awful. Mm-hmm. And But um, apparently, these two people hit upon the uh, idea that a killer pike was going to be the next big thing. So. so funny. But yeah, he wanted, I, I don't, can't remember now, I think he wanted like 8000 for this bloody fiberglass pike. And it's like, where am I supposed to put it exactly? Yeah, it's not like the kiss casket where you, you know it's a talking point at, at right. parties and you can you know pack it full of ice and use it as a drinks cooler. I think the problem when you deal with props is that you often have to deal with traders and they have these very deluded ideas of what things are worth. Right. Um, and this kind of annoys me from like when you look back in the Godot days when students used to throw this stuff out um, and you'd have like collectors just like happen upon this stuff um i know michael palin's got like the, the ship guns from uh the land that time forgot in this garden oh nice which i think if you can have any prop i think that's that's definitely a cool one to have something that or uh ray harry hughes done like a skeleton or something like that that'd be kind of cool but yeah back to uh obviously critters four um yeah basically it, it's it's just a very by the numbers film there's a lot of running around and Charlie, for some reason, is just useless. In, well, he's more useless, should we say. He's oh, he's of... so annoying. <laughs> I mean, this film, it's... I don't know where they were going, because they recycle so much footage, which, again, is nothing new. If anyone who's a fan of Roger Corman know that he recycled enough footage, but here it's just so blatant. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact it's all recycled from Don Keith Hopper's uh, Android. They recycle yeah. like a lot of the, uh, the sets and a lot of the spaceship footage and stuff, so... This one was just really just, I think, just pulled out of the studio's ass, really. <laughs> Probably. Um, but, I mean, is there anything to really like in this film? I think it's curious that Angela Bassett is in it. Um, Not bad, Durf. She went on to 
I think she's an Academy Award winner. Like, she's a pretty amazing actress. She's gorgeous. I wonder if how, like, and you know how Leo is in three. Like, I wonder if they ever think about their days <laughs> before they were A-listers. Like, oh, remember when we were, like, I wonder if they've ever met. <laughs> and we're like, hey, remember when we were in Critters together? <laughs> or remember when we were in Critters three and four? Like, wasn't that, isn't that funny? Like, or is it something that they want to just completely and utterly forget altogether? I don't know. I mean, this is, this is why I often wonder, because you obviously have people get their start in, uh, in, in yeah. horror films. I mean, what, Tom Hanks is, he knows you're alone. Uh, yeah. George Clooney's Return to Horror High. Billy Jennifer Bob, Aniston in The Leprechaun. Yeah, Billy Bob Thornton's Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town. Uh-huh. Matt and Trey Parker did Cannibal the Musical for Trauma. Yep, yep. yep. Um, and I kind of wondered, I mean, I know Matt and Trey are very fond of their time with, with Trauma. Um, James Gunn, again, speaks very fondly of his time yeah. with Trauma. Yeah, Vega, all but those guys. You obviously have these people who, again, that, that obviously make their money in this industry. People like Brad Dourif, uh, Bruce Campbell. Yeah, Brad Dourif is in, is in four, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, he's in four. I think he plays the junkie guy. Yes, 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 yes. And his daughter, I only realized recently, appears in the new Chucky movie. Oh. She's very pretty. Is she? You wouldn't you wouldn't think that uh, Brad Durst's daughter would <laughs> be so pretty. But then again, I know, <coughs> I knew, knew someone who actually had a real thing for Brad Durst, so. Yeah. <laughs> if, uh, I don't I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the voice or something. Does Brad Durst do anything for you, John? No, not really. <laughs> I mean... What is that one movie? I mean, he's been in a million movies, but there's been a couple like really creepy performances of his that I've enjoyed over the years. But I also confuse him with Michael Ironside a lot because they're both pretty prolific and they both play like pretty psycho characters most of the time. And so I feel like they're kind of interchangeable. Like Brad Dourif is a poor man's Michael Ironside. Michael Ironside is a poor man's Brad Dourif kind of interchangeability there. Yeah. If that makes sense. Okay. And where does Clancy Brown fit into that list? Um, nowhere. No? <laughs> nowhere. <laughs> I don't I, think anywhere. I would put Clancy Brown in the in the, in the same the, in that list. Ah, uh, in the Shawshank. Brown. It's all about the voice with Clancy Brown. Yeah. Or the, uh, or Sleepy Hollow. Is he in Sleepy Hollow? Yeah, I think so. Isn't he? I don't know. I think we need to again do just look at uh, look at these <laughs> character actors. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who plays uh, the bad guy in in RoboCop now. Um. Oh. 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 Kurtwood Smith. Uh, no, Peter Weller. No, Peter Weller plays RoboCop. Yeah. yeah oh, you're talking villain. about the bad guy. Yeah. Who's the bad guy? I forget. Look it up. <laughs> Look it up now. Um, let me see. Yeah, Kurtwood Smith. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, and obviously when I see Kurtwood Smith... Oh, um, uh, that 70s show. The yeah, from that he turns 70s. up as the dad in that 70s show and it's like, yeah, yeah. my God, it's like so jarring when you see someone who's like, plays a psycho in these movies and then they turn up in like some light-hearted comedy show. Right, some sitcom. <laughs> so it, I don't know if it sort of like adds an edge to it, adds an edge to these people when you see them play these sort of psychos and then 
whenever you see them, they've always they're playing like a, a dominating sort of character, especially in the the with Kevin Smith, that he always plays these sort of strong, domineering uh, like father types, and yeah. it sort of adds adds an additional edge to their character because you've kind of got in your memory that it's like performances as the other guys, the same way that when I see Mitch Pileggi play yeah. any one of his psychos, mm-hmm. that, um, it's always in the back of your mind that you know he Mitch Pileggi he's crazy. Yeah. It's Horace Pinker, he's crazy as shit. <laughs> um but yeah, and obviously the Critics Four ends and uh with it the series ends. So when you saw the end of Critics Four originally, I mean, did you want more? Did you were you hoping that there would be a way for them to carry this on? I uh, I mean, like I said, it's like my nineteen ninety two year old self seen critters for i don't know but then definitely my 2016 self would like another critters <laughs> and is it just would you say it's a, a nostalgia thing the fact that yeah, it's not had anything to fill this void definitely definitely a nostalgia thing and just the critters are badass let's bring them back yeah um so okay let's rank these things okay um okay so critters wonderful what order are you going to put them i'm gonna go one, three, two, and four. Okay. And what what order are you gonna go? I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go with the order that they came. Okay, one, I two, mean, three, four. <laughs> yeah, one, two, three, four. I mean, that's not to say that Chris Two isn't a good movie. Um, it's just a different movie to Part One. Right. And I remember Part One, even though it's a fifteen here in the UK, so it makes me just seem like an absolute pussy. That it was such an intense experience, and it scared the hell out of me. Chris did. Oh, really? um, and I watched it as a kid, and I think that it because it wasn't so much the gore; it's just the how tense it was, and the fact it had so many good jump scares. Yeah, um, it did have some good ones, such as the scene where she's going through the bedroom and the cat jumps out. And yeah, yeah. In the first half, it just gets me every time. So you know what uh, gets me when they get the cat out of the mailbox in the end. <laughs> well, you thought the cat had been blown up, or something. yeah, and then like the house rebuilds itself or whatever, and then they then it's like. They hear the cat, and he's in the mailbox. Hooray! <laughs> it's funny, because I never wondered where the cat was. Really? Until light turned up. I, I, I always wonder where the cat goes. <laughs> I don't think cats, for the most part, they're, they're pretty much safe when it comes to movie animals. It's only the dog that buys it. No, cats always get it, and I always hate it when the cat, or the dog, gets it. I always hate it. <laughs> you must have hated the animator, then. Oh, God, I can't watch the Rufus bit. <laughs> the Rufus bit? Oh, it is oh, so unintentionally funny. So poor Rufus. <laughs> Just watching him act with this clearly stuffed cat. Yeah, that, <laughs> I think, well, yeah, it takes me out of it, so I don't have to think about Rufus being an actual cat. Yeah, and I, I just... I, just feel like such a piece of shit when he throws against the wall because that just oh. cracks me up. <laughs> and he brings it back oh. and it's like <laughs> it's kind of like when the baboon explodes in the fly. I hate that too. <laughs> um, but that's, I mean it's all for science so I guess it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean I think that, that pretty much brings us to the end of our Critters franchise look back. Uh, Ta-da! <laughs> a sterling start to the series that quickly descended into degraded. Mess. I think is the word you are yeah. looking for. <laughs> it's it's yeah it's I don't know it, the 
Crits 3 and 4, they were just such a letdown that I've not returned to them really since. Aww. Um, I know you obviously have, because you've, I mean, you've, you've said that you watched them recently, but yeah, yeah I think, if, if anything, I've seen Crits 1 and 2 are the ones that I return to time and time again, and it's just such a shame that 3 and 4 couldn't find that energy, they couldn't find that spark, and it's not so much a case of budget, if they could just find something in the writing, you know, yeah. Like, if they could have just made something more of the, the kitchen scene, and I think you t- talking badly about the kitchen scene, it seems funnier than it than it, than it probably was when I watched it. Ah, uh, um, before you watch it. <laughs> especially, especially when he's throwing the flower around. God, the flower gets me. <laughs> that and uh, the cupcakes in the face. Yeah, that's really funny, Which too. is like their attempt at doing, doing sort of slapsticky humor with these, these things. Yeah. But I think that was the thing with 4. It didn't really have that. The closest it comes to a sense of humor is Charlie wearing shades at the end and flying the spaceship. Yeah, it's not funny. Um, <laughs> which isn't good, but yeah. Well, still a good time. I'm glad. I'm glad that you managed to get something out of these films. Well, you as well. <laughs> well, obviously, yeah, with the first two. As I said, the when it gets to three and four, it's just. I think I need to watch it with like-minded people. Yeah. I mean, this thing we need to do, Jim. We'll hang out and we'll, we'll watch Critics 3 and 4 and you can see it. Yeah. <laughs> we just we'll do the whole, whole four back whole to back. marathon, yeah. That essentially brings us to the end of, of our show. Jen, what uh, sort of projects have you got coming up? Um, I am working on a article about Fulci's, Lucio Fulci's Cat in the Brain for a zine, for a Euro horror zine um, produced here in the States. And that should be out probably... Um, late August or so. Um, I'm going to talk about kind of all things Fulci. It's an all Fulci issue. Okay. So I am going to be focusing on Cat in the Brain, which is kind of the Fulci on Fulci film of his. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, So I'm working on that. And then I'm going to be working on um, a feature for a magazine that focuses on grindhouse films. Um, it's a local New York native and he's putting together a fanzine called, um, midnight grindhouse, something along those lines. And, um, I'm going to do a piece for them. I haven't decided what exactly. I think I might talk about either, um, the Findlay's Michael and Roberta Findlay, who are kind of exploitation pioneers or my girl, Doris Wishman, she could always use a little bit more love in the exploitation film world. So got those two things coming up and you can check them out via my Facebook as soon as those are available. So yeah, that's what I got going on. Yeah. Well, obviously I put the, the link uh, to your, your Facebook uh, in the description section below. So anyone there uh, obviously wanting to uh, follow Jen's work and uh, see some groovy pictures of cats and <laughs> tattoos and yep. stuff. Yeah. Um, it's 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 always an entertaining read your Facebook page. I have to say, so. <laughs> I appreciate but, that. And it's good, obviously, the fact that even though the cover cavalcade of professions is is gone, sadly, it seems uh, that you're still obviously out there and you're still writing and putting work yeah, out I'm there. Trying to, I, I'm not as prolific as I once was, but we'll get back there eventually. I mean, would you ever consider like collecting these bits and pieces together? Because obviously, you're saying you're writing for fanzines, you're writing for zines, which Unless you're in the area or you have connections there, it t- tend to be notoriously difficult to get hold of. So, would you ever consider like putting a collection together? 
Yeah, I'd love to. I think that would be great. And I'd love to get back to blogging. Um, this has definitely given me kind of the creative boost that I've needed. This has been a good time. I'm glad. Yeah, thank you. But, uh, well, thank you, Jim, for obviously coming and hanging out. I mean, it's, Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, taken a few shows to get you on, but we finally made it happen. I'm just so yeah. glad that we did. Um, I'm just sorry I made you sit through Critters 4 to do it. So. It's all good. <laughs> Anytime. But, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get you back on again soon. Yeah, definitely. Until next time, though, this is uh, Edward Jones signing off another edition of the Bad Bad Damage Strange Showcase. Remind you, as always, to keep it strange. <laughs>